Festival One podcast. Hi everyone. Just in case you're confused, I'm Chris and this is Katie. Hey. <laughs> and um, what we're going to do today is um, share a story that's usually only told in confidential environments, but um, we think the, so, the topic is so important that we're um, you know, speaking openly of the impact that... Um, you're right there, Greg? <laughs> we're speaking openly about the impact that um, drugs and alcohol have had on our family's life. And one of the things we've learned is that um, those issues have an impact on families right across society, including our church families. So our hope is today that... Uh, one, we can um, educate you in some way, um, give you some understanding of, of what it is we're dealing with. And um, also, if there's anyone here who has family members who are going through the same issues, to actually give you some hope that, that there are answers, that you're not trapped in that forever. Look, before we um, start, you'll have been given the words to the serenity prayer. Um, that, that's a tradition that it's um, set at the start and end of all AA and NA meetings. And um, we'd, we'd like to start this session by um, reciting that together. Um, I was, I, because you're so packed, I won't ask you to stand. Normally we'd do that, so you're welcome to just read it there. But just for a second, we just close your eyes and we're going to have a little bit of silence for those who are still suffering. There's thousands of people still suffering from addiction and alcoholism. So just a few moments silence for the still suffering addicts. Thank you. Now please say with Katie and I, God, grant, grant me, me the serenity, serenity to, accept to accept the things, the things I cannot change, courage, courage to change the things I can, and the, and wisdom, the wisdom to know the, the difference. difference. Thank you. <clears throat> um, just a quick note before we start. We don't usually read off notes at all. You know, usually when we're sharing with people, it's just in quite a personal environment and we just kind of say off the cuff what's on our heart at the time. Um, but today, because we did really want to make sure that we got all of our points across and we're able to give you guys, you know, a really well-balanced experience, we have written down some notes. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that is, this is 100% our story. It's our journey. We've lived it, we've walked it, and now we're sharing it. Um, and so bearing that in mind, some of these parts are really raw and um, they can be quite emotional for us. Um, there's a little bit of a bet going on between which one of us is going to cry first. So <laughs> just, um, you know, bear with us through that and, um, yeah, it should, should be a good time. Thanks. You know, like five, just over five years ago, I could have never imagined being here happy and healthy with my daughter at a Christian festival, never, never mind sharing our story. Because sometime around her early teens, our happy, loving, empathetic little girl started to become someone quite different. What began as moodiness or the occasional out-of-character incident soon descended into anxiety and isolation. Her abuse of alcohol and drugs, depression and eating issues eventually spiralled out of control and our life became a succession of dramas, broken promises and overwhelming fear for what our future held. So hi, I'm Katie, again, <laughs> um, and I'm an alcoholic and I'm a drug addict. Um, I have now been clean and sober and in recovery for 
five years and seven months. Um, in case you're wondering. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> in case you're wondering, that's 2,040 days. <laughs> Addiction is um, often described in the rooms of NA and AA as a cunning, baffling and powerful disease. Um, and people explain it in many different ways. And one metaphor that has really stuck with me is that it's like a light switch. Um, <clears throat> all addicts are born with this light inside of them. And although some of the tendencies can begin to be seen when they're a child, there seem to be a few ways that you can flick the switch. Um, so for some people, this happens later in life. You know, they gradually go from being a social drinker to drinking more and more and more. Um, until their life kind of gets out of control. Um, sometimes it's through a significant event or trauma. And then for others, there seems to be <coughs> just completely flipped from the first moment that they touch substances. Um, and for me, I'm one of those people. So from when I first started drinking at 13, um, my addiction began to manifest. So there's probably parents out there thinking, Katie's parents must have been nuts. Imagine letting her drink at 13. Well, the simple answer is we didn't. We were actually the responsible parents who took Katie and a group of her school friends to um, a police blue light dance. They are um, controlled alcohol-free events. And um, when we picked them up after that um, first dance, all the kids were really hyped up because one of their friends from school had somehow um, taken some alcohol along and written themselves off so badly, they had to go to hospital to have their stomach pumped. And um, my wife, Di, and I were sort of uh, quite shocked, but thought, oh, probably in the big picture, that's not a bad lesson, you know, for, uh, for, a, young, for a young girl to, um, to get. And so um, a couple of months later, when the next dance came along, we um, took Kate and her friends there with, um, with some confidence. Um, we'd probably only been home an hour or so that night when we got a call from the security guard saying, your daughter is lying in the garden in a pool of vomit, unconscious. Can you come and get her? We rushed in and um, took her home and had a really you know, worrying night um, staying up with her, over, you know, looking after her. And um, in the morning, of course, there was you know, tears and remorse and apologies and... Um, you know, much as that incident hurt, Di and I again thought, well, you know, it's a terrible lesson, but wow, you know, may, maybe in the big picture that, that's a good lesson for her. If only we knew. Drinking for me was never a social event. Uh, it served one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to get drunk. The problem with that was, <clears throat> for me, just getting drunk was never enough. While other people noticed changes in my behaviour, I was never able to reach my ideal perception of what being drunk was. Instead, I'd just drink it until I passed out or worse, enter a phase of, back, enter a phase of blackout. Um, I just wanted to feel numb. I wanted to shut the voices up that were in my head and that would tell me that I wasn't good enough. But it never happened. Binge drinking soon became a regular occurrence as I chased that feeling that was always just one drink away. It wasn't until I began using drugs at 16 that I was finally able to find that elusive feeling of numbness that I was seeking. As my using quickly progressed to everyday life, my world began to change. 
the values that I was brought up on no longer held any meaning. The relationships that I'd formed with my friends and family were no longer important. My self-respect went out the window <clears throat> as my focus changed to caring about one thing and one thing only, drugs, the getting, using, and finding ways and means to get more. You know, when we talk about this now, my wife Di and I just wonder how we kind of missed the signs. But I think one of the reasons was that in many ways, um, what Katie was doing um, wasn't that different from her peer group. You know, drinking and drugging, unfortunately, is rife amongst our young people. You know, I won't bore you with the statistics, but um, Google them sometime, you'll be shocked. And then you think about um, those other curses on New Zealand's young people of their mental health and youth suicide, and just maybe, just maybe there's some sort of line of connection there. But anyway, what we didn't realise at first was just how abnormal our daughter's use of substances was. And as a result, our once normal family life became a shambles as the close relationship we had with our youngest daughter was all but destroyed. Today is not about war stories, but we went through a time when there seemed to be just a never-ending stream of frightening incidents where Katie put herself in dangerous situations. Those incidents often involved um, police call-outs, including at least twice when the police helicopter was involved. And saying that here in this environment, that might seem matter of fact, but I can assure you, as a parent, it's anything but. It's just a frightening mix of fear and shame and guilt and, and anger. And as a parent, it's just terrifying to know that your child has so little care for her own life that she's putting herself in jeopardy. And there's absolutely nothing that we as her parents can do about it. We had no ability to change the trajectory of her life. And as a parent, that's a really helpless, hopeless feeling. It got to the stage where Di and I felt it was only a matter of time before we lost our beautiful girl. Pretty much whenever Katie went out, we would steal ourselves for that knock on the door. And inevitably, it finally happened in the early hours one morning. But when, the open, when we opened the door, our 19-year-old daughter was there handcuffed in the back of a police car with two officers. This was no happy homecoming, though. Our daughter was off her head angry, kicking and screaming. That she hated us and wanted to die. She had also assaulted one of the officers, the policewoman who had every right to arrest her and had her charged. Somehow, the, somehow that officer recognised that her daughter needed help. And after taking her back to the cells, she wasn't charged, but referred to mental health services for assessment. And that decision, that police officer's moment of wisdom, literally saved Katie's life. Uh, this was another one of those blackout nights for me. Um, I was in a club in Takapuna and everything was great. Tequila shots were flying round. All of a sudden, the next thing I know, I'm standing in front of an officer and I've just punched her in the face. Um, obviously, I was handcuffed and um, <clears throat> they prepared to take me back to the station. 
when um, I saw a friend and this friend had so driven all the boys out to town and he kind of came over and was, you know, like, what's going on? You know, there's little Katie and, like, she's handcuffed and, like, what, what's, the, what's the situation here? And um, the cops spoke to him and he managed to let the police um, uncuff me and said that I could go home with him as long as he put me straight in the car and drove me home. Um, the walk from the police car to his car was probably about 20 metres and in that 20 metres, I, I remember getting to the car and then thinking, nah, mate, and I ran. Um, I don't know what was going through my head. On that run, I had my phone and my um, ID and my FPOS card in, like, a little sleeve in the back of my phone because, you know, like, town. Um, <clears throat> but I was running and I checked my phone and my phone battery was dead. And so I just threw it at a wall as I was running and I just kept running. Um, somehow I ended up in a taxi um, and I told the taxi driver that I wanted him to drop me off in Castor Bay, which is, the, you know, like <clears throat> a few bays around from Takapuna. So it wasn't a far drive. Um, the next thing I remember in this drive was the taxi driver asking me if I lived in Castor Bay, you know, was I going to a house? And I told the taxi driver that I wasn't going to a house. I was actually going to a cliff that's behind Castor Bay and my... My intention was to jump off it. Um, that taxi driver, bless him, I don't know whether he cared about my well-being or he cared about the fact that I didn't have the 20 bucks to give him for the ride, but he rung the police. And, um, of course, the police that came to the call-out was the same officer that I had, you know, previously punched in the face. So, um, she, you know, they handcuffed me again, chucked me in the car, and... Yeah, I don't know why they had originally intended to take me home. You know, again, they were looking at this poor little, you know, 19-year-old girl and they must have felt sorry for me even though I was totally vile. Um, and, you know, so they did try and take me home, but, you know, I was thrashing around in the back seat of the car. I was swearing, I was spitting, like I was feral. And um, by the time they got home and saw the way that I then treated my parents, you know, I think maybe they thought I was going to get home and be like, oh, mum and dad, I love you, I'm so sorry. And instead I swore at them and, you know, kicked and screamed and everything else. So I ended up back at the station. Um, when I did get to the station, I was really feral there as well. Um, for safety reasons, I had to be completely taken out of my clothes and put into not a straight jacket. It's basically like a pillowcase that just has spaces for your arms to come out. Um, they're real thick, heavy-duty jackets, and they put them in there so you can't, you know, like do anything with your laces or anything like that. You're not supposed to be able to get out of the suit on your own. Um, I weighed 45 kgs, and I managed to curl myself into a ball and push against the material so hard that I ripped my um, safety jacket in two. Um, so yeah, the police at the station did not have a very fun night with me down there. They actually turned off all my water and stuff because I was just, you know, like, I made blobs of toilet paper and started throwing at them at the roof. Like, I don't, I was nuts. Um, eventually though, I did fall asleep and um, when I woke up, the mental health team came around and they spoke to me and I, Kind of, I, they actually came around once and I told them to, you know, go away. And then the next time they came around, I realised this was my only way that I was going to get out of this little cell. Like, I had no other choice but to talk to these people. Um, with that clarity in mind, I talked to them and told them that I was A-OK. -okay. I'd obviously just taken something the night before someone spiked my drink or something, you know. 
Um, and, and so they let me go. Um, so I walked down to this gas station that's just down the road from the police station. Um, I had no money, no phone, no nothing, just the clothes that I'd had on my back that, like, were disgusting. Um, and I got down there and I remember, like, the most thing on my mind was that I needed to have a cigarette and this guy just walked out with a packet and he wouldn't give me one and I was so mad because I was like, come on, man, just one. Anyway, so I, then I had to go into the gas station and I was like, my only option here is to call my parents. Like, I don't know any other numbers off by heart. I really have no other options. So I called them and instead of calling them with some grace and some, you know, remorse, I called them and I was angry. Um, it's probably the worst part... In recalling this story, the worst part about it is that I felt no remorse afterwards. Um, I had no concern of the people that I'd hurt while they were trying to help me. Um, instead, I was just angry, and I remember thinking how it was so unfair and um, that everyone had just overreacted to a little situation. Now, we've, um, we've still got no idea what that policewoman saw in Katie that night that led to the life-changing decision she made. You know, the police deal with dozens of drunken little Katies all over New Zealand on Friday and Saturday nights. And how that officer saw there was something more there, as I say, we don't know, but we'll be eternally grateful for. Because along with giving Katie another chance that up until then she certainly didn't deserve, the incident was also a catalyst for us to reach outside ourselves and seek more help. It sounds crazy given the incident that Katie's just shared with you, but at that stage we still didn't really know what Katie's problem was. All we knew was that things had to change before the next knock on the door brought us even worse news. So we tried to get Katie into government-funded um, treatment, but were told that that couldn't happen until she kicked her addiction. And while that wasn't very helpful, it finally put a name to what we were dealing with. And in the weeks following this incident, Katie reluctantly agreed to go into rehab. She was admitted to Capri Hospital on February 27th, 2013. June. Oh, June. Sorry, how could I forget? <laughs> June 27th, 2013. And to say that her life, not to mention our family's life, has been transformed since is putting it mildly. After that incident with the policewoman, I stopped trying to hide my drug use in front of my parents. I think at some level it was a bit of a cry for help. I knew that I was in a very dangerous position. My life had spiralled completely out of control and I could do nothing within my power to stop it. At that point, I was in the brink of anorexia, as food was the only area in my life that willpower still seemed to work. I was using drugs every day, and although I hated drinking, and I was so fearful of those blackouts, when alcohol was presented to me, I was powerless to say no. I went into Capri because I wanted to get my life back together. But that didn't mean that I had any intention of ever stopping drinking or using drugs. I simply wanted to learn how to use them better, to be smarter and control my use. I soon learned that that was never going to happen. One of the most powerful things that was ever said to me was on my very first day at Capri. One of the counsellors, who was an ex-meth ex addict himself, said to me, people in our position only have three options, jails, institution and death. He looked me up and down and said, my money's on death. It was a wake-up call, sure. It showed me the seriousness of my disease, but I still didn't surrender. 
In fact, I fought my recovery for a very long time. And um, as a result of that, the first few months were really terrible. I hated being clean and I basically did the opposite of what everyone told me to do. At one point, the insanity I faced while drinking was my everyday reality. And I started to begin that suicide was the easy and better way out. By the time that Katie went into rehab, Di and I were just Di and I were just about as sick as she was. Sick from worry about her, but also sick in the way we were living. Because before she got to rehab, we were embarrassed about what we saw as Katie's behaviour and our failure to control it as a good family could. And so we gradually isolated ourselves from friends and family. We'd also allowed ourselves to be manipulated into letting Katie use drugs in our home. That's the decision which just went to get everything we believed in and had stood for in our life. But in the state we were in, it made some sort of sense because there was less risk of her being caught using illegal substances by the police. And in our ignorance, we've been focused on trying to change your behaviour with all the tools in the parents' armoury. Tough love, endless love, boundaries, no boundaries, control, punishment, guilt, motivation, shame. And on one or two nightmare occasions, I'm ashamed to say, physical violence. None of them worked because we just didn't understand that Katie had a disease which human willpower was powerless against. That's something I've reminded of every day, because before Katie went into rehab, um, Katie and I got a tattoo together. It's on here. It says, Kia kaha, be strong. And it came out of a well-intentioned but futile attempt futile attempt to bond together to fight the demon that was in her life. As she had many times in her life, Kate promised with all her heart that she would give up drugs and alcohol. I promised her that I'll be there for her no matter what. And we went through the pain of the tattoo together to seal our commitment. Sadly, a few days later, those promises were blown away in the wind when her mental obsession combined with her physical craving of her addiction, resulted in her picking up again. Luckily, just as it was for Katie, rehab was a turning point for Di and I too. It's where we finally began to understand just what it was we were dealing with and how we could support Kate without enabling her. The first thing we learnt was that alcohol or addiction is not bad behaviour, or a lack of morals or willpower. It's a disease and is recognised as such by the World Health Organisation. What that meant was we didn't have a bad daughter that somehow we had to get good. We had a sick daughter that we had to help get well. And in our minds, that just changed everything. It allowed us to see completely differently what, what our role was going to be. We also learnt the three C's of addiction. As parents, we didn't cause it, and obviously that was a huge weight of guilt off our shoulders. We also learnt we couldn't control it, and we couldn't cure it. And as I say again, along with learning this was the disease we were dealing with, finally started to give us some clarity about what the future might hold. 
We also learned that secrets make you sick. And for most of Katie's six years of drinking and drugging, we kept, we kept it to ourselves. Um, you know, just trying to cover up and keep everything, you know, looking as normal as it could be in, in, the, um, in the home. But once Katie was diagnosed, we, I guess, had, gave ourselves the freedom to tell everyone we knew. So all our friends and family. And, you know, in keeping the secret, the fear would be that people would judge us and um, would tell us we were crap parents. And once we were um, brave enough to be open about it, the support came pouring in at, at two levels. One, because, you know, the good people around us wanted to see us um, helping Katie get well. But also, it started to give us an idea of just how widespread addiction and alcoholism is. As we told friends, time and time again, they'd say, oh, I've got a brother. Oh, my mother was like that. You know, it's just, it's absolutely um, staggering how widespread it is when you um, open up to the world around you. The other important thing we also learned is that there's healing and helping. And actually more than that, in addiction, they say you can only keep recovery by giving it away. And that's the twist in the tail of this disease. You're never going to be cured, but you can um, claim a daily relief from it by helping others too. And you know, while there's still huge stigma attached to addiction and alcoholism, um, that's why we're here today, to try and help people understand what it is, and rather than you know, hide away from this disease like we did, but to shine a light on it. Oh, that's me. <laughs> um, I learned all those things too, and while I understood them intellectually, I hadn't taken them into my heart and surrendered my will. Always the rebel. I manipulated my way out of rehab after two weeks. I've got this, and there's nothing more that they can teach me. And I went home with a plan. Surprise, surprise, my determination to stick to the plan lasted less than a week. And as I mentioned earlier, I spent the next few months in a terrible, terrible place. It's what they call white-knuckling it, hanging on to my sobriety with nothing more than bloody-minded determination to prove everyone else wrong as they said that I wouldn't be able to make it after leaving rehab early. It all came to a head when I had a fight with my parents and screamed at them that I wanted to die. After a call to the police, I was being escorted to the hospital in the back of the police car, and I remember thinking, why did I get clean for this? It was at that point that I had my first really easy opportunity to relapse. Um, the police took me into the hospital and I got kind of went under the mental health umbrella. And so while they were trying to counsel me and talk me through it, and I'm there denying having said anything, and I'm not, I shouldn't be there and rowdy, rowdy, rah, um, they offered me to take a drug test. Um, and so I was just shy of 30 days clean at that stage. And because I left rehab early, I hadn't actually ever had a, a clean drug test before. All my drug tests were coming up positive. Um, so I was like, right, I'll take the test. I'll show you. I'm clean, you know. I've got this. I'll show you. Here's my clean drug test. So I did it. And then in that moment, I was like, well, if I'm going to relapse, now would be the perfect time because I got that clean drug test right there. I've got, <laughs> you know, that um, the results were going to be mailed to my parents. So I was like, this is, the, like, this is a great window. Um, and so I met up with a friend. I was discharged from hospital and I got a friend to pick me up. And um, by that stage, I had lost even more weight 
than I had initially gone into rehab. I was about 39 kgs now by this stage. And um, he, I said to him, all right, let's go use. And he was like, I will, but first you have to eat. So we ate some food, and then I was like, cool, let's go get the drugs. And we drove probably about a 25-minute car ride, and the whole way there I'm like, yeah, let's get the drugs, let's get the drugs. And then we got to the driveway, um, definitely not in my power. Something came over me, and I couldn't get down the driveway to go and pick up the drugs. Um, it was at that point that I realised that I needed to do this recovery for me and not for my family who wanted it so badly for my life. <laughs> yeah, the fact that I'm standing here today, oh no, sorry, here we are. <laughs> I gave myself two weeks to surrender to the program, to do all the suggested things, um, and I told myself that if it wasn't working by then, then at least I'd given it a good shot, you know. I could say I put 110% into it and I don't like it, it's not for me and I can go back to my old way knowing that I had put in as much as I could. Um, the fact that I'm standing here today, or sitting here today, tells you that once I started to do that, what I was supposed to do in recovery, the miracles of recovery started to happen to me. So Katie's journey in recovery has by no means an easy one. You know, recovery isn't like that. It's, it's up and down. But one day at a time, for more than 2,000 days, she's remained clean and sober and she's learned to live life on life terms. That's something that's just part of the normal growing up process for most of us. We all know that life has its ups and downs. Bad stuff happens to all of us at some stage in our life. And that, when it does, we feel the emotional pain and learn a bit more to cope with our feelings. But people like Katie, people in addiction, don't do that. They suppress their feelings with drink or drugs and as a result, never grow up emotionally. So they're time-locked with the emotional development they had when they began using. In Katie's case, that meant she was a 19-year-old with a 13-year-old's emotional intelligence. You know, as we've found out um, in the rooms of NA since then, she's actually quite fortunate there was only that gap. There's, people, there's guys in their mid-40s who are still teenagers in their decision-making and um, lack of understanding about consequences, you know, locked, locked away in there. So the bad stuff that um, happened in the early part of Katie's recovery, the death of her grandmother um, and a brother-in-law who took his own life, were really, were really, really painful for Katie. But one day at a time, Katie's hung in there and the benefits have flowed. Six months after going into recovery, Katie went back to varsity and eventually completed her degree in early childhood education. Now that's a field she probably never would have been able to work in if she'd have been arrested and charged with assaulting that policewoman that fateful night. So she's now 25 and our daughter has grown into a beautiful young woman and I know I'm her dad saying that, but I mean, I ask you, you know. <laughs> um, she's a productive member of society with a responsible job teaching young children. She has her own apartment and a strong commitment to sharing her story of hope and help other young people who she meets entering recovery through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Um, as I said right at the start of this talk, I'm Katie and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. But these days, my disease doesn't define who I am. 
I am now a functioning member of society, and thanks to recovery, I'm now living a reality which I never dreamed possible for myself. Now, I'm not saying I'm cured. In fact, I know that I never will be. Addiction and alcoholism are lifelong diseases. However, when I entered recovery, I was offered a solution, a daily reprieve, which I received from attending regular AA and NA meetings, having a faith in God, and giving service not only to other recovering addicts, but also in the community. As I said at the beginning of this talk, my goal in my drinking and using days was to feel numb. Sitting here now is the last thing that I ever wanted to feel. When I mentioned that light switch earlier, I bet a lot of you imagined a switch being flipped and seeing a light go on. In fact, exactly the opposite happened. My addiction switched off a light inside me, creating darkness over my hopes, my dreams, and my potential. Now, although I can never flick that particular switch back on, from the glimmer of hope that I received when I entered recovery to where I'm standing now, I have a new light in my life. Now I have a new hope. I have love and laughter and joy in my life. But most of all, just for today, I have a freedom from my addiction. I still have ups and downs in life. You know, it's a roller coaster, but I want to jump on the ride. And who doesn't? Um, but today I understand that God didn't pull me through a storm just to push me into a puddle. Five key things that I'd like to leave you with today are that um, number one is that recovery is not a destination. It's a lifelong journey. Um, it's a really scary prospect at first, but I can honestly say that the life that I have now would not be possible without my recovery and it's so worth it. Uh, number two is that bro broken promises are an unfortunate aspect of the disease. No matter how much an addict may want to just say no or change their behavior, without their recovery, it's virtually impossible. Um, and those broken promises aren't really, they're not lies. Um, so like when Dad mentioned the tattoo story, I honestly wanted that to work as much as he did. You know, I thought, you know, I, I, for me, it was like, man, my dad is so awesome. He's jumping on board with me. He's trying to show me his support. I need to show him something too. Like, this is cool. We're going to get my life back on track. We'll go get these tattoos and my life is going to be amazing. Um, but that was completely out of my control that it wasn't going to happen um, because I didn't have any tools. I didn't have any recovery tools to get better. Um, number three is reiterating what my dad already mentioned Alcoholism and addiction is a disease, and it doesn't seem to matter what values you were raised on or what type of community you live in. The disease has no respect of sect, denomination, age, race, sexual identity, religion, or lack of religion. Number four. In my addiction, I pushed away everybody that I loved. Somehow, I'm fortunate enough that they stuck by me they loved me when I couldn't love myself, and sometimes I felt like they were loving me back to wellness. Their, su their support was a huge factor for me to get well. Number five, standing where I am in recovery. Of course, I feel a whole lot in guilt and shame surrounding my past. <clears throat> but even if I could change it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change my journey because it has shaped me into the person that I am today and placed me into a position where I can help others to achieve the serenity that I have through recovery. I've shared my story in a format that I hope gives you an insight into the mind of an addict 
who is still in active addiction. However, for me in recovery now, I feel very different. Recalling these stories fills me with great regret and remorse for the pain and suffering that I caused not only my family, but also my community. For a long time, I kept these memories to myself, using them as a way to continually remind myself that I'm not a good person, that I don't deserve a life of recovery, or that I'm just not worthy of life at all. However, in recovery, I've found growth. I've found strength in my new life. And now, these reminders of my shame of my past are such a powerful reason for me not to pick up the first drink or drug. So where was God in all this? Although we couldn't see it at the time, mainly because we hadn't been to church for about 20 years, with hindsight, we can look back and see he was holding us in his hands the whole time. Countless times in her drinking and using days, Katie put herself in harm's way. But in every situation, God's protection was over her. I love the words of the worship song, Reckless Love. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God chases me down, fights till I'm found, and leaves the 99. And that's what happened to our family. Jesus left the 99 to bring, to bring us back to him. But we learned really quickly that God didn't need us to take him into the world of recovery. He was already there. Jesus taught us to love the poor and downtrodden. And God has been central to addicts and alcoholics' journeys of recovery from the start. His name is written large in the 12 steps of AA. And the serenity prayer that we said earlier is still said at the start and end of every AA and NA meeting. And the little halls where such groups meet might not look like perches, might not look like churches, but the power of that prayer from a group of those still suffering and in recovery is as awe-inspiring as anything you could experience in the finest cathedral. God also put two special people in our life when we needed them most. The first was that policewoman we told you about earlier, whose decision not to charge Katie has meant that she has been able to rebuild her life without any of the consequences, i.e. You know, convictions or even jail time, that many addicts are still burdened with once they get clean. By the way, we recently had the opportunity to uh, connect with that officer. Her name is Jo McCammon, and she was um, just thrilled, thrilled to learn the impact that her compassionate actions had had on Katie's life. Uh, the other special person that God put into our lives was a doctor um, at the rehab that I went to. Uh, the first weekend I was there, he asked um, all of us patients if anyone wanted to go to church with him. Um, you know, when you're speaking to a bunch of downtrodden alcoholics and addicts, you know, you need to add a little bit of extra appeal to that. So he let us know that um, if we did come with him, that he'd buy us some coffee and donuts on the way. <laughs> and um, you weren't allowed caffeine in the rehab that I was at. So that was like top tier coffee was life. Still is. <laughs> Um, the offer was just way too good to refuse and a friend of mine really wanted to go to church as well. Um, so I went along with them. Um, at that stage, I was only two days clean. So I, I don't remember much. 
Um, all I can remember is hearing the phrase, Jesus is in your boat. And I cried pretty much from start to finish of that, <laughs> of that time. And um, I got home and I rang my mum and dad afterwards and I was so excited and I raved and raved and raved. And um, they were so shocked that they just assumed that I had relapsed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the next weekend, my friend and I went to church again with, um, with, the, with this doctor, Dr. Charles. Um, again, I got my coffee. Again, <laughs> I had a great time. Bawled my eyes through the whole service. Got back, picked up the phone, rang mum and dad. And by that stage, they were like, all right, we're on to her. And so they came along the week after that, and um, that's kind of what led us back into the church. Um, that was the start of us understanding God's part in my um, recovery journey, because the AA and NA programs are very much God-based. In fact, they're all about just trying to give up your control, uh, give up trying to control things yourself and handing it over to God. NAA, they talk about letting go and letting God. Uh, there's also another AA saying that I love, which is God can move mountains, but you'd better bring your shovel. What that means is that in recovery, it is an action program. So through it, God gives you the tools to get well, but you have got to use them. If you're prepared to do that, then miracles can happen. So our family's here today overwhelmingly grateful for the miracle of recovery we've been given. Um, as a family, it's brought us back to Jesus. And it's also given us a new purpose in our lives. We're no experts in this field by any means, but we've been through the fire and believe it's God's plan to use our experience to help other families in the same situation. So that's why we're passionate about sharing our story, not only to help prepare other sufferers and their families for what lies ahead, but also to offer that most important commodity of all, hope. We had no hope for the future when Katie went into recovery. But now we can honestly tell others in that same situation that no matter what they or their loved ones have done or who they have hurt, there is hope for a better life and recovery with God's help. Thank you. So Chris and Katie have agreed to take um, some questions. So if you put up your hand, we're just going to move this mic back to the hand that's first up. So any questions? Okay, I'm going to start us off. So um, if what would you say to someone um, or a church community who knows of someone or someone comes to the, them with a problem of addiction, what, what would you be, what would be the first thing that you say to them? Um, probably the first thing is helping them understand, um, you know, the, the thing that, that changed our life and that is that um, addiction or alcoholism don't come from a, from a bad place, that, that you have to somehow make them good. You have to understand that they are suffering from a disease and um, there is, while, it, while there's no cure for it, there is a daily relief through um, a program of abstinence and following the steps of NA and AA. And, you know, of course, you know, as, as um, we've just finished up with saying, you know, God is a huge part of that. But I think it's also important that um, 
a church, or as Christians, we understand um, it's, it's an action program, and much as we'd like to think, and, and I know in some cases it can, that prayer heals everything, um, that's not necessarily going to happen with an addict or an alcoholic. But they need to um, accept their situation and take action themselves too. Yeah, I think for me probably, you know, initially the biggest thing is just about um, creating a space where there's no judgment. Um, you know, obviously for me that's easy because I have my own story to back myself up. Um, and that is what is so beautiful about the rooms of AA and NA is that everyone in there has a story, you know. It's not going to be exactly the same as yours, but guaranteed you'll be hard-pressed to find an addict who's done, um, you know, something... You'd be hard-pressed not to find an addict who's done something worse than you. Um, and so it's it's just really comforting to know that you can walk into a room where there's a whole bunch of people who, um, you know, have all had their same journey that you have had and have now come to the rooms, you know, to find help and to, um, you know, gather together in each other and have that power of, you know, one addict helping another addict. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's probably the most powerful thing is to always, you know, try and redirect them to someone who's walked the journey, you know, someone who's not just talking the talk, but, you know, they've had to walk the walk themselves. Um, but, yeah, definitely that no judgment and just, um, you know, showering them with, with unconditional love as best you can. Um, Katie, I'm just wondering if you ever had kids, or I don't know if you've got kids, what would your recommend, what would you do to that your kids wouldn't be put in that situation? What would you, how would you educate them? Or I don't know, can you educate them? Yeah, that is a question that I think about a lot. Um, alcoholism and addiction are um, genetic diseases. So my children have a one in four chance of having the predisposition to become an alcoholic or an addict. Um, I don't have children myself yet, so I can't say that this is what I've done. Um, but mostly it would just be about the awareness of my own story and the story of others. You know, I'm not going to try and shy away from my children, just like I don't try and shy away from my friends and my family. Um, so it'd be kind of just, I mean, gradually, the recovery program will always be in my life. So there'll always be really subtle signs in everything that I say and everything that I do that kind of points to recovery. Um, but, yeah, it'll be when they're, you know, getting to an age um, where they're kind of starting to hang out with friends in that area and stuff would just be about giving them, being honest and telling them the, the honesty about it. You know, um, statistically, if a child doesn't drink before they're 21, it's a much higher, they have a much lower chance of becoming addicted to it. Um, so it'd be things around that. But at the end of the day, all I can do is guide them um, they're going to have to make their own life choices and at least I know where to send them if they end up down my road too. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just... Um, Katty touched on what I was going to talk about at the end there, that there's all, search, all sorts of research around the longer you can hold off your children drinking, the better chance they have of not heading down this road. And, and unfortunately in today's society, that, that's pretty unrealistic, but you know, 21, even something like 23, because their teenage brain is still maturing. And um, the teenage brain has a, a great capacity to withstand alcohol and an equal capacity not to understand the consequences of what's going on. So, um, yeah, I mean, 
It might not be a decision that's in your hands, but the longer you can keep them away from it, the better. Um, Katie, I, I may have missed this, but um, I'm just in a practical sense um, with your ongoing recovery. Um, do you regularly uh, seek the Lord's help with that? Um, definitely. So in the 12 steps, they say that you need to do a daily prayer to hand your will and your life over to the care of a power greater than yourself. Um, they use those words, you know, so that it's not quite so scary for people who have come from um, you know, all backgrounds, but yeah, for me, that is getting on my knees in the morning and praying out to God, crying out for his help and his wisdom and to hand my life over to him um, because I know that I can't do this. Um, so yeah, it's God in me as me, but I am not God. And um, yeah, that's kind of how I live my life. Practically speaking, I also go to meetings as well. So that is a part of my recovery, you know, I, I didn't just get well and now I'm well. Um, I do have to continuously, you know, go to meetings and see other people in recovery and volunteer in rehabs and stuff like that to help me um, stay clean. What sort of support was there for families of the addicts, like for you going through that pain or even just that freaking out in the middle of the night, like where are they? Are they hurting themselves, you know? Um, until Katie got to rehab, virtually none at all. And, um, you know, we see ourselves as reasonably well-educated, reasonably well-resourced people. But, um, you know, looking back now, we, the, it took a lot longer to get to where we needed to go to because we just didn't, we couldn't find it. And, um, but once we got into, into rehab, um, at the pre where Katie was, um, they had like a, a parents' education night. And so, th so that's where we learned, you know, the three C's and the... It's um, not a, it's a, you know, she's a sick girl and we learnt all those things there. And now I'm passionate about passing that on. So um, unfortunately Capri's closed, but we um, volunteer at another rehab and that's my role as like a parent support person to, when they first come in, to uh, try and give them some idea of what's in front of them and the sort of things that have worked for us. But also, as I say, just that commodity of hope mm. because... Um, by the time you're beautiful little girls at that stage, that's right out the door. There is also a 12-step fellowship um, called Al-Anon. So there's AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. NA is Narcotics Anonymous. There's a whole lot of other anonymouses. And then there's Al-Anon, which is for family members of people who um, are suffering from drug and alcohol addiction. So it's just kind of basically the same thing as an AA or NA meeting, but for family members. Oh, yeah, there's a contact sheet that we have down the back um, with a whole bunch of numbers for anyone who would like them. Thanks. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, that vulnerability is um, really touching, so thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to ask how can we, as members of the church, decrease the stigma around addiction and provide support? Good question. Um, Honestly, just talking about it for me is, you know, one of the things, you know, that was part of the reason why we wanted to come here is that we want to get it out there that addiction and alcoholism are diseases, you know. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't go and visit your friend on a cancer ward and say, can you just hurry up and get better? Um, you know, can you just do it? Um, you know, much the same. Um, an addict can't just do it. They need the tools. They need their medicine. Um, 
but yeah, it's just, you know, being non non-judgmental and being open and honest about it within our churches probably would be my answer. Yeah, exactly what she said. And and also just having some knowledge of the sort of support that took us ages to find, once you know about it, it's right there. And so grab that contact sheet. You never know who's going to walk into your church. Could be mm. us. <laughs> <laughs> um, if there is one more question, we do have time for just one more. So, um, What are some helpful tools that you've found along the way? Like, say, if you have impulse like tools that you've found personally useful. Yeah, um, there are so many different ones and so many ones that work for different people. Um, I have to be really honest, in the early days I smoked cigarettes and that was my, <laughs> that was my thing. Um, I know a woman who, uh, when she had the urge to use, she would go into her wardrobe and she would clean all her shoes. And by the time she finished cleaning her shoes, she'd either not want to use or she'd have to start again and clean all her shoes again. Um, so... In the early days, it is really minute by minute, um, praying and all that kind of stuff. It's all just, it's so in the moment. Um, you just, sometimes you do just have to white knuckle it, have a glass of water. Um, for me, what I do now is I play the tape forward. Um, so like I said, it, um, the disease is really cunning, baffling and powerful. And so for me now, my disease doesn't tell me um, that you want to go out and have a wild night. My disease tells me that you want to have one glass of wine with dinner and where's the harm in that? So for me, I have to play that tape forward. I know that I might have one glass of wine with dinner. I know that the next night I'll probably have three glasses of wine with dinner. I know that by the end of that week, I'm going to be in a horrendous state and if I'm still alive, if I'm really, really lucky, I might end up back in the AA program with one day clean. That is best case scenario if I relapse. I have to walk back through the doors of NA and AA with one day clean. Um, worst case scenario is that I'm never going to make it back there. Um, and so with that prospect in mind and now with the clarity that I have in recovery, I can play that tape forward and see where it's going to leave me. Um, but yeah, in those early days, you don't have that kind of, or I certainly didn't have that kind of foresight. And it was really just sometimes through the cravings, you just have to push through um, call your sponsor, call somebody else in recovery and just chat to them and be like, yeah, this is a real hard time. And they're like, yeah, I know, I've been there. Um, and so sometimes just the comforting word of knowing that you're not the only one struggling through this um, is really helpful as well. Nothing, nothing more I could add. <laughs> Chris, Katie, um, I've actually been choked half the time <laughs> trying to... <laughs> So I just, on behalf of us all here, thank you so much for your honesty, your openness. Um, let's not shoot around the bush. Um, this is a part of um, life that does carry a lot of stigma. So I just really want to honour you both for your bravery here today. Um, so can we just put our hands together? Uh, sorry. Before we leave, actually, um, like Dad said at the beginning, in an AA or an NA meeting, we'll do the serenity prayer at the beginning and the end of each meeting. 
Um, we didn't ask you to stand because of space, but what we'd really love to do is that um, in NA and AA, we realise that we recognise that there is power in a group and there's power in, um, you know, the combined strength of people. Um, so what we say is hug a druggie. Um, so if everyone wouldn't mind jumping up, I don't care if I'm the only druggie in here. I bet you I'm not, though. Grab whoever's near you. Oh, they didn't get it. Loop arms and we're going to say the serenity prayer. <laughs> but you can continue hugging after. All right. God. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work at it. For more episodes, go to festival.one.